0: Alhamdulillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'dihuhu wa nastaghfiruhu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina man yahdihi Allah fala mudilla lahu yudlil fala hadiya All praise is due to Allah may the blessings of Allah be upon his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam brothers and sisters assalamu alaykum or rahmatullahi wa barakatuh welcome to this Islamic Studies course, as it is announced, it's going to deal with the topic, The Sweetness of Iman, which is going to be over a series of nine lectures, based on the book Lum'atul A'tiqad by Al-Imam Ibn Qudama Al-Maqdisi. Our lecturer is no stranger to you, Insha'Allah, Shaykh Ali al khair for agreeing to attend to this important event. Of course, as well, most of you know al-Muntada al-Islami. Al-Muntada al-Islami, as you know, is uh, an independent center uh, of Ahl-Sunna wa which jamaah that focuses on da'wah uh, through education and spreading awareness amongst the Muslims and the non-Muslims in the UK. And it is part of this mission, insha'Allah, running courses like these, which we hope with all sincerity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant us tawfiq and guidance to achieve the full success through such courses. Without further ado, insha'Allah, I don't want to take too much time of this lecture, and uh, I, should have forg- I should have apologized for the uh, late kick-off, <laughs> the latest start of the session, inshallah. This was due to some uh, operational uh, reasons, so we seek your forgiveness for this late start. Uh, I leave the microphone to Sheikh Ali Al Tamimi to start his course, inshallah.
1: Alhamdulillah, wa 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 ilayhi wa min anfusina wa min uh, it brings me great pleasure of course to be here once again at the Muntada. And and uh, as as you heard, uh, our topic uh, during this session is we'll be discussing uh, a book, a short essay on uh, beliefs called Dum'at al-A'tiqad by Ibn Qudama and the session as a whole has been given the title uh, The Sweetness of Faith and um, insha'Allah ta'ala by studying these matters of belief it will increase our iman and assist us in gaining the sweetness of faith so I guess a good place to start is with the issue of the sweetness of faith, what is the sweetness of faith? Well, we have a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where the Prophet ﷺ said, al-Iman." Uh, he has tasted the sweetness of faith. Who is that person? The Prophet said, he has tasted the sweetness of faith, he who is, or has become pleased with Allah as his Lord, meaning his, the one he worships, with Islam as his religion, and with Muhammad as his prophet. So, the sweetness of faith is achieved when a person uh, has those three qualities in his heart. Uh, he becomes pleased that Allah is his Lord his, the one who he worships and so therefore he worships none other than Allah he, Allah is the s- s- focal point for his aim in life, for his journeying in life he, the second quality, Islam is his religion, He's pleased that Islam is his religion so he follows the commandments of Islam and avoids the prohibitions of Islam uh, trying to fully uh, gain that quality of being a Muslim one who has submitted unto Allah and likewise he is pleased that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is his prophet so the example uh, for his life, the, the human being which he tries to mold and he tries to pattern his life around is that of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and each one of us has I imagine tasting the sweetness of faith at one time or the other in his life. I mean, I cannot imagine a Muslim having not tasted the sweetness of faith at one point or the other in his life. I mean, for those brothers who have uh, you know, entered into the fold of Islam, have repented and, come and become Muslims, I'm sure they, they can inform us when they first became Muslims how that feeling they had in their hearts. And, and that's, that's the sweetness of Iman And I think each one of us uh, Irrespective if we were born Muslims Or we came into the fold of Islam You know, we'll have certain times During the year uh, When we taste uh, the sweetness of Iman Like usually during the beginning of the month of Ramadan uh, We have this feeling that You know, I mean, uh, usually all Muslims have a feeling Of some sort of happiness and joy That they're entering into this act of worship uh, Especially when you have an, an opportunity uh, To make Umrah, to make Hajj so this is something which is, you know, not, uh, I would say, not uh, hidden from us in terms of uh, what it means to taste the sweetness of Iman. But the issue, I mean, the, the point is, is that how do we make the sweetness of faith, the sweetness of Iman, something which is constant in our lives? In other words, how do we always feel that way? I mean, we feel that way maybe at being in Ramadan, during Eid, if we, if we make Umrah, you know, if we, if we perform the pilgrimage, we perform Hajj, uh, if you're at certain gatherings and so forth, if you're at the Masjid, you feel that sweetness of Iman. But how, how do we make that from just an occasional experience, an, escape, an occasional spiritual experience, how, how do we now make this something which is something which is constant in our lives? Something so that we taste the sweetness of faith when we wake up in the morning and all through the day until we retire in the evening and then when we wake up the next morning that, that is our state or do or, or we fear for ourselves as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned that there will come a time when a person he will wake up as a believer but when the conclusion of the day comes he will retire as an unbeliever or he will wake up as an unbeliever and retire as a Muslim because and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was explaining that there will come a time uh, Our the day of judgment when people's faith will be wavering to that to that degree that in the morning they'll be believers but by nightfall they'll be unbelievers or in the morning they'll be unbelievers and by you know the, by by night they will be believers because their faith is not stable and so during the day it switches. It goes from one you know from belief to to unbelief, from from being pleased with Allah to being Uh, displeased with Allah, from being pleased with the Prophet to being displeased with the Prophet From being pleased with Islam as one's religion to being displeased with Islam as one's religion. And this is something which I think also is not unique. Uh, uh, I mean, let me re-express that. I I believe this is something which is not also uh, uncommon in the world today among Muslims. (laughs) That there are, unfortunately, uh, groups of Muslims who uh... who have faced this problem where, they, where their faith is because of the um, different trials and tribulations or what is known in the terminology of the hadith the different fitan their, their faith does you know waver back and forth so this is one extreme and we want the other extreme when we reach the level of ihsan uh... when we worship uh, Allah as as he is to be worship in the sense that we worship Allah as if we see him for even though He does not see, we do not see him in this world he sees us and so that pleasure with Allah which being tasting the sweetness of faith is something which is constant in our lives and not an occasional experience. That's the aim to which we are trying to strive, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us that. Now, in order to gain the sweetness of Iman I mean, what has to have a foundation in, in, in Iman? And that foundation comes by learning the Aqidah, learning the beliefs uh, the, uh, of, of faith because when one has that foundation it, it should then follow with acts of worship which will then are built upon that uh, foundation and so then the sweetness of iman is uh, uh, obtained and that, that is why I guess the aim of this the course was that we try to learn the basics of faith, we try to learn the basic principles of iman, of aqidah so that we may build upon them so that we may get this goal of learning the sweetness of iman. So the first objective uh, that we have during the next uh, nine uh, lectures or so, uh, is to learn the basic principles of, of aqid, of faith. And, um, you know, I, I hope that this is something which we can measure ourselves. I mean, I hope that after, you know, the two days we spent together uh, or so, that w- you know we can say that, well, we actually did learn something at the end of uh, those two days. So that, that's a, that's an aim. The other aim is that this should be uh, a, a something which propels us to further study uh, of aqidah. I mean, aqidah, the studying of faith of our aqidah, is not something which is just done during a weekend. Uh, um, uh, to to sit together and to uh, learn something of our, our religion over a weekend is, is good. It's positive, and we should do that. But it's it's something which should be ongoing. Something should be constant. And so the other aim, I would hope, is that uh, we take this opportunity to uh, continue with these studies uh, on our own or in in whatever means we can uh, after we finish from this course. And uh, there's a couple things which we need to, uh, before we start in earnest, which I'd like to do. Uh, First, uh, what is, I mean, the essay, I, I guess the essay was distributed to you. Uh, you all have a copy of, of the Akhidah. And it, it's a very short creed. I mean, it's only, I guess, about 14 pages here. Um, uh, uh, some 96 points by my uh, numbering. I, I'm the one who put these um, ch- uh, paragraph numbers to it. Um, and uh, this is a draft translation. So, I mean, one thing I want to point out is that... You know, I, I had to do this uh, a couple of days ago really quickly so it's a draft translation so, I mean, when we go through it we might correct part of it and, and part of that I want to point out is that the ayat uh, which the author uh, uses as evidences to the points I, I just took it from one of the translations I had at home so I didn't really uh, go through the ayat and the ahadith uh, and translate them uh, retranslate them based upon the Arabic grammar based upon the books of Tafsir so if the ayat or the ahadith uh, sort of look um, a little bit we might correct sometimes, we might feel that, that it's not wrong as we go across this because that, that's, that's the reason um, the other issue is that I, I'd like to also to set uh, this creed, this akhida in perspective um, uh, first of all, uh, let's start off by uh, talking about the author Ibn Qudama. Who is Ibn Qudama and you know, why are we studying this Aqidah in, in particular? Well, uh, Ibn Qudama was a, a great scholar of Islam. Uh, he's, in fact, he's pr- perhaps among the most uh, well known uh, scholars of Islam, even though he might not be known to us uh, because really he doesn't have anything in translating English language except for one book which was translated by an Orientalist. but. Uh, he was a great uh, scholar of Islam. And he was born in the year 541 Hijrah. So he was born, uh, just to put in perspective, I mean, he was born 541 years after the Prophet ﷺ's Hijrah. Uh, we know that, uh, for instance, um, he comes about a century before Ibn Taymiyyah, to, to give uh, uh, some perspective in terms of uh, birth. Ibn Taymiyyah dies in the year 723, and uh, Ibn Qadamah dies like in the year 620. So there's about a century... Between their time. Uh, he's also born during a time which is before, it's the time during the Crusades, I mean, the, as, as we'll explore, point out some aspects of his life, but before the sack of Baghdad, before the, uh, by the Mongolians, by the Tartars. So he's in this period of, of Islamic history. Uh, he's also during a period of Islamic history when, I mean, Al-Anduras is, is still uh, primarily a Muslim country even though uh, the Muslims have begun to lose parts of an Andalus, like Toledo, or a in Arabic, is something which is lost during his lifetime. So, he's in this type of period of the Islamic world. It's a type of period when uh, there's a lot of turmoil, and there is a lot of uh, world events, major world events going on. I mean, you have the Crusades, and the takeover, of, uh, uh, the, uh, of the, the loss of parts of uh, Anduras, parts of Spain, uh, the northern part of about the first north half of the country uh, to the Christians and also uh, the loss of uh, Palestine and, and parts of Syria and Lebanon also to the Christians. And likewise, you have the Mongolians are starting to move across uh, from uh, the deserts of China and this is something which is a process which is starting. Anyway, uh, he was a descendant of Umar ibn al-Khattab, which is something which is interesting uh, about him. Um, uh, Between him and Umar ibn al-Khattab is about 12 or 13 generations. Um, And uh, his his name was Uh, Abdullah. Abdullah ibn Ahmed. That was his name, Abdullah the son of Ahmed. Uh, And he's known often in the books by you look at the books of fiqh, they often quote him by saying Abu Muhammad said. Abu Muhammad said, in reference to him, that was his kunya. Uh, Qudama, which is, uh, he's also referred to as Ibn Qudama, uh, that was his great-grandfather. So, sometimes it's problematic uh, when you study uh, books in the Arabic language, uh, individuals refer to uh, in ways which is not typical to how we uh, refer to people like in the English language and so forth. So, you know, Ibn Qudama, uh, you might say, oh, his father was Qudama. No, that's actually his great-grandfather. His name was uh, Abdullah ibn Ahmed and his, his kunya was Abu Muhammad. Uh, he's also known as al-Maqdasi, as, as his, his last name is, and that's in reference to uh, Bayt al maqdis or Jerusalem. Uh, because he was born in a city uh, uh, or a village outside of of Nablus in, in Palestine uh Jama'i. and uh, since Nablus in Palestine is i mean close to uh, to uh, you know to Jerusalem uh, people would in, from they would refer themselves to call themselves an Maktisi out of reference to Beit al-Maktis because it's Bait al-Maktis of course is being one of the holy lands of Allah azza right so, instead of referring yourself to say that I'm, I'm from Nablus, you know, and Abulsi, you know, you would choose a, a reference yourself to Al-Maqtas, al because it's, it's more honorable to, even though there's some distance, but since it's close enough, you could just pass, you know, pass for that. So, it's like if you I guess, you were born outside of London, right, you would say that, uh... uh <laughs> if you were proud of uh, of that, you would call yourself uh, a Londoner, or something like that, <laughs> I, I guess. Or, or for us in the United States, we call uh, Washington uh, funny, even if you're outside of Washington D.C. Right? So um, that that was that's in, in terms of that. Now uh, he, at the age of ten, his family had to flee. His family had to flee uh, Palestine, and the reason why is because the Crusades uh, had you know taken over the area and. a lot of Muslims were put to the sword and so forth. So his father took his family and they fled to Damascus. Uh, When they arrived in Damascus, uh, I mean, their family is a very unique family in in Islamic history because as a family, it produced a number of scholars, and not just over one generation, but over many, many generations. I mean, you find from the same family, scholars which go from two or three centuries. it's, It's really remarkable how they... How they came about, but what they decided to do was his, his, his father did, and and his family was they went to one of the mountains uh, outside of Damascus, and they just sort of settled there. So they, I mean, they were sort of like a what, like uh, a pioneering family uh, to use in a, uh, an American um, um, sort of um, reference. Uh, they they went there. They had to clean clear off the land. And they had to, you know, they had to build their homes. And one of the things, first things they built was a masjid and a school. And uh, in fact, it was it was such they were not inside the city proper of Damascus. They were outside of Damascus. So what they had to do was they also had to guard themselves uh, during the night. So for for many years they would sleep uh, with you know guards posted in front of their homes uh, from the family to protect themselves from you know either marauding. Uh, uh... you know bedouins or thieves or so forth I mean, the Islamic world was very unstable there was not much central authority so if you lived outside of the city you were sort of left to your own you know and you have to sort of fend and defend yourself so I mean, this was the type of uh, uh... just to sort of give you an idea of the type of you know background he grew up in so I mean, as most you know Muslim uh... children who were on the path of scholarship he began the first thing with memorizing the quran at an early age it's from his father and learning knowledge from his family itself. Then, at, in, in his uh, early 20s or so, he traveled to Baghdad, where uh, he, um, he, he went to see the, the, the prominent scholars uh, at that time. And he went with his cousin, uh, who was also a great scholar of hadith, uh, and who uh, uh, later on, of course, became a great scholar of hadith. And, and their aim was to basically to see Abdul Qadir al jilani uh, who was the preeminent scholar of the... the uh, ibn Khudama uh, was from a Hanbali family. Uh, and so, uh, therefore, they, they went to see the scholars uh, of, of, of their madhhab. And, and, and uh, as a result, uh, the, the Hanbali madhhab was, was primarily uh, found in, in Baghdad, in Iraq, due, because that's where Ahmed ibn Hanbal was you know, born raised and uh, eventually died. And so as a result, um, the, that... that school of thought, uh, in, in terms of legal school of thought, was found in Baghdad and so they went uh, to there to study. And so they spent about a year or so with Abdul Khalil Jilani. Then Abdul Jilani died and they continued their studies there uh, in Iraq, uh, in Baghdad uh, with other uh, Hanbali scholars. Uh, their names are not important at this point but that's where he got his, his knowledge and he, and he learned. And so then he came back to uh, Damascus after his finishing his studies, uh, his cousin, uh, Abdul Ghani, continued on east, uh, going to uh, what is uh, now what we call Iran and Afghanistan, and and studying from the scholars of Hadith, uh, since his his focus was Hadith studies in that part of the world, and and really traveled around the world extensively before coming back to Damascus. Now, uh, when Ibn Qudama. Uh, arrived in, in Damascus, uh, you know, he, he was, um, I mean, his scholarship was uh, very unique. I mean, besides, he was known for his piety and his worship and so forth, but he was known for I mean, his scholarship. I mean, Ibn Taymiyyah, as I said, who came a century after him, said that after Al uh there was none who uh, entered into the area of Asham, into Damascus, uh, as knowledgeable as Ibn Qudaba. Now, who, who was Al-Auza'i? al was uh, the major scholar of the third generation. Okay? We have a sahaba right? The, the first generation, right? Then we have the Tabi'in, the second generation. Then we have the third generation known as Atba' or tabi'in, all right? Now, this third generation, there were four prominent scholars in the third generation in four areas of the Islamic world. You had Imam Malik in Medina, which I think we're familiar with, right? There was a scholar by the name of Layth ibn Sa'ad in Egypt, uh, there was a scholar by the name of a Thawri in Iraq and there was a scholar by the name of an Oza'i, who was in Damascus in Syria those were the four you know preeminent scholars uh, during the third generation so you know Ibn Taymiyyah who was a great scholar in his own uh, right said that after you know uh, Al Oza'i who was in the third generation uh, and Oza'i he dies I mean I don't remember the year but Malik died in the year 179 so at Oza'i. You know, died either a little bit before, or a little bit after. I think you know, 176, 183, I, I don't remember which which year. But the point is, is that you know, so from that time until you know Ibn Qudama, which is at the end, so we have from the end of the second century to the end of the sixth uh, uh, the sixth century. You know, for 400 years, you know, there is no scholar of the level of Ibn Qudama. In fact, if you look at it, if you look at it, even from after the time of Ibn Taymiyyah to our time. In, now we're in the 15th century there probably has been no scholar of fiqh great scholar of fiqh as ibn Qudamah i mean Ibn Qudamah probably is the greatest faqih produced in the in in, in the ummah of muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam after the sahaba the tabi'in the four imams you know and that thing he's probably the greatest faqih produced and and this was noticed even you know right after his lifetime ibn al salam who was a great scholar, in the, maybe a generation after Ibn Qudama, said that I could not find myself giving a fatwa, unless I had a copy of al-Mughni, which was Ibn Qudama's prime, greatest work that he ever wrote, uh, in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my possession. So, I mean, probably, if you look at Ibn Qudama's, I mean, fiqh uh, uh, output, I mean, he probably w- is the greatest scholar uh, the greatest faqih and legal scholar. We're talking about the legal scholar uh, produced in the Ummah of Muhammad. Now, uh, so he, he wrote extensively, and, uh, as, as the scholars of his time. And as the scholars of his time, and, uh, uh, were, they were not scholars just in a single uh, field of knowledge. I mean, he, so you find the writings of Ibn Qudama I mean, dealing with a whole host of topics. All right? uh, for instance, he wrote regarding matters is the heart, piety. One of his uh, famous books was called Kit- Kitab al the book of the repenters, where he mentions, talks about repentance, and just different incidents of repentance, from the time of Adam, alayhi salam, to people in his time who repented, uh, among you know, rulers and common folk and so forth. Uh, he also uh, wrote, as I mentioned, a number of books on fiqh, And in fiqh, he had a a, a style of writing. He wrote a book called an umda which was the primary fiqh book that people are supposed to study uh, when they are first studying, I mean, Sharia. And that was, it's a basic textbook. In the Hanbali Mathab. And that's the basic textbook, which is still used until today, which is a testimony to his scholarship, that the fact that, you know, a legal textbook, you know, is used for a number of centuries. I mean, from his time until now, eight centuries, I mean, still... You know, I mean, if you study, humbly, law, you still, you know, start with an umda. Um, and that, that's a, 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 a testament to his scholarship. Um, and then he had another book called Al Kafi, uh, and then he had another book called Al Muqna, which were, you know, second and third levels. And finally, the fourth level, when you reach the level of the shihad and Muqni, which means the sufficient. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, you don't need anything more after that. And it's, it's considered to be one of the greatest books ever uh, written in, in the history of Islam. It, it, if you, the printed version now if you went to the uh, marketplace uh, I don't think so, upstairs in the bookstore but you you, it's about 12 or 13 volumes and it has over maybe 13 or 14,000 issues of fiqh, of law uh, there and it's, it's, it's a remarkable book uh, um, to have uh, and also he wrote books uh, uh, it, that was his legal play. he wrote a book on the usur al-fiqh, Radat al Nazar. Uh, which was a, a, a basic textbook in Usul uh, al Fiqh, uh, uh, which he basically took from Al Ghazali's Al Mustasfa. And uh, that's a very, also a very, uh, this is the primary uh, book on Usul al Fiqh studied in the Hanbali Mathab until today. And likewise, he had uh, a, a little essay on Aqeedah, uh, which, which we we're studying. Um, now, the, he also had other books on Aqeedah, a number of other books, like and, and the other books he wrote. Uh, just concerning specific topics in aqidah. So he has a book on Qadr. He has a book on the the merits of the the Prophet's companions. He has a book on uh, Allah's transcendence, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above his creation and so forth. So he wrote books on particular topics of aqidah. Uh, The other aspect about Ibn Qudama which is is interesting, and uh, one of the reasons why I decided to choose uh, this particular work in aqidah, uh, is and this is probably one of the unknown aspects of his life. It was that he was also a great mujahid. Uh, this is something which is, which is, I mean, Ibn Khodama was, you know, his, his his scholarship in fiqh. You know, when you when you when you look at, a, for instance, when you look at a person's life, right? I mean, obviously, a person's life, a, a great scholar or, a, you know, he has many aspects. So people tend to focus on perhaps one aspect and because he was probably one of the greatest scholars in fiqh ever produced in the um of Muhammad I mean everybody talks about his books on fiqh and you know the value of his books on fiqh and studies are done on it so that aspect of his life is you know always emphasized but there is another aspect of his life which is not emphasized but if you look in his you know biography you'll find it was the fact that he was a, a mujahid and Ibn Qudama was you know such that uh, you know, he accompanied Salahuddin al-Ayubi uh, Went Salahuddin al-Ayubi's campaign uh, in 570 or 571 To uh, bring back uh, Bayt al-Maqdis to the lands of the Muslims I And mean, he was there with Salahuddin al-Ayubi And he was there, not just uh, there by himself But he, he went there, him and his brother And the members of his household They had their own tent in the campaign And their students See, I mean, I mean they, you know, they were scholars, and so they also brought their students along. And uh, with their students, um, their students uh, would, would also participate with them. And uh, Salah salahuddin ayubi used to come, and he would visit them uh, uh, in the tent. I mean, like, like at certain times would come and, you know, and pay his respects and say salam and so forth. So this, was, this is how he was. he was. He was a great mujahid. And, and this is something which I think is very important for us, that you know uh... to bring this aspect of his life um, because it's important for us that that we have examples uh... as as muslim youth examples of scholars who we follow uh... who are have a complete uh, uh... complete personality or background i mean they're not just scholars and they're not just men of worship but they're also men of action they're men who live in the world which that, that, that they're dealing with. I mean, in his time, the issue in his area was uh, dealing with the, the Crusades. I mean, this was the, this was the issue, and so you see him dealing with that issue at that time. I mean, in a very clear aspect of his life. Anyway, Ibn qudama I mean, as as you know, I mean, after of course with his participation in jihad and his writing and his teaching, uh, he also uh, was known for his, his character and his manners. Uh, he used to, they used to say that. Ibn Qudamah was such that uh, you could never uh, defeat him in an argument or uh, get angry with him because he was always smiling uh, if people of Bid'a or people of uh, sinfulness or people of uh, injustice would try to uh, you know, engage him, try to argue with him or try to anger him right? he, he, would, he was always smiling so they, they would never be able to gain what they want and, this is one of his uh, character shows, gives us a sort of an insight to how his his behavior, how his personality was. Uh, He died uh, at the age of eighty, on Eid al-Fitr in the year uh, 620 uh, and it was of course his death if you look at the the historians who wrote uh, uh, the testimonies obviously after after you die, right? I mean some people like um, are considered really important because of the proximity in which, uh, when, the, when the history is being written, right? But to know about your importance is after, when people write to you after a long time afterwards. You know? There was a book, which was, uh, excuse me, uh, as a slide point, uh, there was a book, which is written because of the uh, new millennium uh, next year is considered, it's called, it's a, I think it said 1,000 uh, uh, people over the last 1,000 years, right? So it's like, who, who were the most important 1,000 thousand most important people over the last 1,000 years, okay? And if you look at the book, I I, I picked up a copy and uh, started to read it. You know, they had people in there which, I mean, obviously their importance and their significance are only due to the proximity of when the guy is writing the book. You know, for instance, I mean, like the Beatles were were, were there just... uh, and so forth, you know, as as among the most uh, important, uh, 1,000 most important people over the last 1,000 years. See, now, you know, that might be true... if, well, of course, I mean the book is skewed is because it's from a Western perspective. I mean, obviously the author and the author is an American from an American perspective, and, and from his own ideological school of thought within that. But the point is, is that I mean, to say that the Beatles are of such importance, well, I mean the Beatles are something which is recent, so maybe their impact now seems important because I mean we're talking about something which occurred in the '60s, right? So it's it's not. Uh, I mean, it's only 30 years, right? So you know, it might seem more important than it really is. But if you, for instance, when he he put amongst the most important people over the last thousand years, he put Imitamia, okay? So, that's interesting, because Taymiyyah died in um, uh, 12, uh, 12, 1328 he died in in Christian reckoning. So, 1328, and now it's 1999, right, is what, 670-some years, right? So, you know, for somebody to be 670 years later, still to be that important, right... That, that shows that he must have been really that important. Because, I mean, his impact is still seen in the world 600 years after his death. So, the same thing, what I'm trying to. That uh, long story goes for a while. Because Ibn Qadamah, when you look at Ibn Kathir's history, Ibn Kathir died in the year 778 or 775, um, who, uh, who wrote his history, B'daiwa When he comes to the, the year of Ibn Qadamah's death, look at the long biography he puts in about Ibn Qadamah. And this is like a century or so, a century and a half after Ibn Qadamah's death. So that shows that the impact of Ibn Qudama was still felt in the Islamic world a century and a half after his death. And as I said today, I mean, until now, I mean, you, there is no person who would be, you know, I mean, his worth, uh, you know... Uh, in, in, in fiqh if he didn't have a copy of, of Al-Mughni in his household or, or use Al-Mughni. I mean, you, you cannot imagine somebody writing a paper I mean, even if you were in school you were writing a paper on any topic in fiqh and if you didn't go to Al-Mughni to refer to it. Uh, you can't imagine any scholar you know any imam in a masjid not having a copy of Al-Mughni you know which is even Khudama's primary works. So that shows that I mean, his impact uh, upon you know, the Ummah until today uh, is seen. And this is inshallah an indication of his uh, piety and his knowledge and, um, uh, so, and so forth and that, that's a very uh, lengthy uh, uh, sort of a quick uh, introduction to um, Ibn Qudamah's life now what about the creed Lum'at al-i'tiqad well uh, what does the word Lum'ah mean Lum'ah you know there's different explanations to what it means I mean one of the explanations it means is like something shining and so forth and also uh, but I, I have a feeling uh, from, from my research is that, that Ibn Qudama's essay was not called al A'tiquad that this name was placed upon whoever, by it, by whoever printed the book in the early part of the century uh, if, if you look at Ibn Qudama's biography uh, and Ibn Qudama's biographers and when they uh, write about it, they say that he authored a you know العتقاد, he authored a, an essay in beliefs they, they never mention it as having a specific name Al-Atiqad <laughs> uh, So this name, you know, Lumat al-Atiqad It also has a, a secondary name Al-Hadi al Sibir al-Rashad I mean, I, my, my, this is just my own uh, You know, my impression Is that this was put by whoever published the book In the beginning of the century Probably by Muhammad Rashid Rada Or whoever was the first one to publish it And so he just gave us some sort of, you know Rhyming title to it as, as it is in the books And, and so forth so, I mean, I'm, I'm not really too concerned about the name, and that's why I'm not going to care too much to uh, explain why it was chosen that, because I have some doubts of Ibn Qudayr and put that title to his book. But one of the interesting things which we should do is about the nature of the book is that, you know, when the scholars used to write books on aqidah, they would, they would write works, you know, short works, for the first thing we should understand. Why would they write short works? Because a person is required to be in terms of belief, just to know the basics of belief. I mean, if you take, I mean, the Umm of Muhammad, right? There's, you know, one billion people. I mean, how much aqidah does each person have to know? He has to know only the basics of aqidah. But when it comes to fiqh, you have to know much more. Because the amount of different actions that you're going to be doing in your lifetime are more... Than, 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 than the beliefs you necessarily have to hold. Uh, this is just in general principle. Uh, that's why if you look at Ibn Qadamah's essay, his, his introductory essay on Fiqh, Al-Umdah, right? That, that, that book is, is in about 150, 200 pages, okay? While his, his essay on Aqidah, I mean, in this public printing I have with it, which has comments on the Hadith and so forth, is only 35 pages, so so I mean why is that because you know in aqid in fiqh in matters of fiqh I mean you have to know much more for instance you have to know tahara right so there's, there's different rules in tahara you, you have to know how to make wudu you have to know how to make wusul you have to know how to make tayammum because there sometimes might come a point in your life where you might not have water okay and if you're a woman you have to know the rules of hayl right uh, and then also uh, you know menstruation and then also nifas uh, if you from after childbirth so th- these are a lot of rules in there and everybody has to know the rules of salah. And as you know, salah has there are different types of salah. There are rules for salah of Jum'ah, which are different from the regular salah. There's rules for salah of Eid. There's salah of Kusuf, right? The, the uh, eclipse prayer. Uh, and uh, uh, there's prayer jama'ah, which is different from when you pray by yourself. Uh, there are rules that are unique for the imam. Uh, if you make an error in prayer, you have to do such to sehu, and there's rules specific to that. Janazah uh, is something which is kifaya so, there are rules concerning visiting the ill, you know, if somebody is deceased, you know, washing the body, burying the body, praying al Janaza. And likewise for zakat, there are rules. If a person is going to have some money, either he's going to give Zakah or he's going to be a recipient of Zakah. There are rules for fasting in Ramadan. There are voluntary fasts. There are rules for Hajj and Umrah. And these are all specific. And then these are just the acts of worship, okay? Plus, you have Jihad, rules for that plus most people are married so they have to know the regulations of marriage and divorce most people engage in some sort of livelihood so they have to know the rules of buying and selling and the different types of contracts which they might enter into if you ever enter into dispute you have to know the rules of testimony and, and judging and so forth so you know you see I mean human life has so many different aspects right just to know just the basics just you know the main points you know bullet points concerning each aspect that you're going to go through in your life is quite a lot so therefore, in fiqh, you have these even the introductory textbooks in fiqh are going to extend 100-200 pages but atida, I mean just to know the minimum, let us say is just to know the basic beliefs and here is the point when they used to write these basic beliefs they would write it in context of the incorrect beliefs present in their time Okay, what does that mean? I mean, the Prophet came and he explained the message of Islam. So the people inherited from the Prophet an understanding of the Aqidah, an understanding of Islam. However, though, when people started to deviate because of introduction of Greek philosophy, introduction of Greek thought, introductions of practices of of Sufism, mysticism, and so forth, uh, 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 taking beliefs and notions from the Christians and from the Jews and from the pagans and so forth, so different types of incorrect beliefs started to appear. So what would happen is that the scholars would then write the beliefs in, 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 um, in, um, in light of these incorrect beliefs. So the issues they would stress were the issues where people got, went to Australia. Mm-hmm. They, and so the issues where people, the Muslims were in agreement to it, and and people did not, you know, have any difference of opinion, they wouldn't touch. So for instance, when you look at the essay, uh, you won't find a section on the angels. Why? Because... For most part, the Muslims, irrespective of their sect, I mean, even if they're from the people some of Sunni, the people of Bidah, their beliefs concerning the angels were basically correct, and so there's no reason to teach that because you're going to teach that which were people had fallen to error to. Now, however, this type of uh, issue is is good except for in our time. This is, the problem comes in our time. Okay, in our time, because we live in an era when you are exposed to so many different beliefs. All right. And also because you live in an era where uh, the notion of individualism is so strong in the world, where everybody believes what he wants to believe, right? The amount of different beliefs a person is exposed to, the amount of different philosophies and ideas and schools of thought that you're exposed to, are so numerous, right? You can no longer uh, say, I just want to take these few basic you know, beliefs. You because... Uh, you're going to be exposed to so many different beliefs and so many different schools of thought and so many different ideas are going to be pumped you know, to you through mass media that you really need to have a very detailed knowledge of Qaeda in order to preserve yourself. While in previous times where societies were more uh, monolithic, there were more you know, the same sort of beliefs throughout the society and so forth, I mean, you, didn't, you, know, you just had to stress some certain sort of points of belief. So that's just something to point out. But anyway... Nonetheless, the essay, uh, still the issues uh, which the author stressed in the essay are still uh, you know, of, of great value today in contemporary times, uh, even though there are a lot of other issues which is not stressed in the essay, which a person would have to study, but at least it provides for us an introduction. So I still think uh, the essay is a good uh, uh, choice to uh, uh, begin with as an introduction, and, and, and the style is one easy to learn and pick up, and, and and I also have a, a personal fondness uh, for the athlete because this was the probably the first athlete I ever read in my life. So you know, so it's like I have a, a personal just attachment to, uh, to it. Um, now and so so and so that is um, the um, uh, an introduction to that. Let's see what time do we have? Well, okay, maybe we can take a few points and we can then uh, open up for questions and answers. Shall so, um, now, why do we study I mean, what What is the purpose of studying I mean, aqeedah Why? I mean, we discussed about the importance of trying to get the sweetness of faith, but why do we do it? Well, first of all, we should understand that, you know, of, of all knowledge, this is just, let's take, let's take a step back. I mean, not just Islamic knowledge. Of all knowledge, knowledge of what we refer to, knowledge of Aqidah, is the most noble form of knowledge. H- how come? How do we know that? Well, because if we, know, if we look, look into what is the subject matter that we're studying I mean the subject matter when you study aqidah in the end is the subject matter is Allah and, and Allah is the creator so any other knowledge is not going to be of that value uh, as, as studying the aqidah which, is, which is primarily deals with the focus on the study of Allah I mean for instance in, in, in human in, in, uh, non-religious knowledge okay uh, I mean, human societies basically view medicine, right, to be the most noble of, of, of knowledge, the most noble of endeavors. Why? Well, because it's studying the human, human being, right? And so the, to that which is dealing with the human being himself, right, is considered to be more noble than dealing with non-human beings, right? So a, a medical doctor, right, it's considered in, in, in probably every single society on earth, I mean, of a, a more noble position than to be a veterinarian, right? To be a person who's... A, I mean, they both study medicine, right? I mean, they both study you know, the pulmonary system. They both study the circulatory system, right? But to know the, to know how to cure the ills and the ailments in a human being is considered to be more valuable than, than a horse, okay? Uh, or, for instance, studying something which is inanimate, like architecture, right? A veterinarian might be considered to be more important than architecture, right? Uh, because, because that's just dealing with something which is inanimate, buildings, rocks, and stones, and so therefore, you know, or... Uh, a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, psychiatrist might consider to be more noble than for instance a person who is studying uh, archaeology you know, or, you know, or anthropology so, so the point is, is that you know, human beings usually rank knowledge according to its needs in the society and also according to the importance of the subject matter and so when we come to the Islamic sciences it's the same uh, knowledge of the Arabic grammar is something which is good but to study the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is considered to be more noble than to become a scholar of the Arabic grammar because the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ are, are the words of the Prophet ﷺ. and so to be a scholar of the Sunnah is considered to be more noble if you were to rank the scholars and to be a grammarian and likewise studying aqeedah and to be a scholar in aqeedah or what is known as the usul fundamental, din is considered to be more noble than to be a jurist a scholar in fiqh why? Because to, to, to study matters dealing with Allah is considered to be more noble than dealing with fiqh, which in the end deals with basically either the relationship of the servant with Allah in terms of the acts of worship or the relationship between servants amongst themselves in terms of marriage and divorce and buying and selling and so forth. So the the first point is is that we should understand that what we're studying is something very noble, it's very important because it is, you know, in the end the subject matters that we're studying, you know, we're learning about Allah. Um, and, and that is why I mean it's co- considered to be al Fiqh Al-Akbar the greater fiqh I mean you know uh, as, as Abu Hanifa who has an essay which is attributed to him uh, in Aqeed, called he called it al fiqh Al-Akbar so it's considered the greater the greater knowledge the greater understanding and, and in reality there is no life I mean one cannot really have one cannot live you know in the sense of having true life one cannot have no uh, pleasure in his soul. One can never, you know, have any pleasure in life until he knows his Lord. Until he knows his Lord by his names and by his attributes, by his actions. Until he knows the purpose of of his existence, which is to worship Allah. Until he knows you know, until he focuses his life to journey unto Allah, one will not live. I mean one will be among those who are dead. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala You know, refer to uh, the revelation which he sent to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He referred to it as ruh, or or the spirit. You know, in the Arabic, the Arabic, the the Arabic word for soul. I mean, one of the words that we use for soul or spirit in the Arabic is ruh. And likewise, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala calls his revelation a ruh. And there's a reason, because in the same way that without you know your body, your physical body, unless it has its ruh, right? Its spirit It will not live It will not be alive, right? In the same way the human being This revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Sent down You know It, it also brings life to the body uh, The true life and, and that's why subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَكَذَلَكَ أَوْحَيْنَا رُوحًا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا and, and, and like such we have revealed Or we have inspired Meaning Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam With a ruh, A spirit our command. In other words, that this revelation, Allah calls it a uh, war, And also its guidance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the Quran and says, قُلْ هُوَ لِلَّذِينَ hudan wa shifa. Say Muhammad to them, it is for those who believe, who believe in this Quran, a hudan, a guidance. And also a shifa, a cure. So it cures from the ailments, the sickness that is, that is, that is in the heart. I mean due to either misunderstandings or due to uh, desires. And so therefore, I mean, and this is the message of the Prophet This is another reason why we study this This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala When he sent the Prophet Every single Prophet came with this message of Tawhid, which is, which is really what the Aqeed is about uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says We have sent amongst every people a messenger and اللَّهَ With this message, worship Allah alone And avoid a that which is worshiped other than Allah so the foundation therefore is that it's required for us to live, you know, for us to be living people, not to be you know, just shells of uh, people. You know, you know, we're physically, but we're, our souls are dead. Uh, that we, we must know who Allah is. We must know His names. We must know His attributes. We must know His actions. And following that, we must know two important principles. Uh, the path which leads us to Allah, and we must know then what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for us once we've journeyed unto Him. So, besides knowing Allah Azawajal, we must know the path leading unto Allah Azawajal. Because, you know, if you know your Lord... I mean, then you'll know that he's a summit, and one of the names of the meaning of a summit is the one who, who, you know, all is turned onto. I mean, you know, in the Arabic language, you say that something you know summit ila means he's turned onto him. Okay. So, if Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is a summit, you know, we, we turn unto him. So, what is the path? What? How do I travel to reach Allah and That's knowing Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's knowing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Sharia, his Sunnah. And knowing the Prophet himself, because he's is the, the example which we are supposed to follow in traveling unto Allah. And all doors unto Allah have been closed except for uh, the door, uh, because I think uh, the other sessions, the question time will probably be less. People we'll have the creed in earnest to study. Um, the, the other point which we should understand is that uh, people in approaching aqidah, people in approaching uh, these matters, human beings, they take basically three paths okay. the first path is the path of the philosophers and those who are influenced by philosophy and that path is, they, they, they say well, okay, these are matters of the unseen I mean, they're not matters that we can study in a laboratory, it's not something that you can observe you can't sit on a hillside and observe these matters they say, okay, well we have a, a mind, let's reason them out, so they try to reason they try to imagine how a law is through their reasoning, they try to imagine what the angels are. They try to imagine what the purpose of life is. They try to imagine what will happen after death through their reasoning. Okay, and certain Muslims have been influenced by that method, that 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 uh, methodology. Another group are those who say, well, we have this thing called a soul. So maybe the soul will be able to know these matters. Maybe by the soul we will be able to, you know. Um, be able to make some sort of connection to the world of the unseen. And so they they go through these different spiritual exercises, and they feel that if they can, uh, you know, sort of punish the body, like by not eating or by uh, fasting for a number of days or by uh, not having any sort of pleasure in life, uh, by by being in some sort of secluded place or, you know, repeating some sort of, you know... uh, 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 statement over and over, whether it's Allah's name or something, something else, that, that their soul would become enlightened, so they would be able to understand these matters. And that's what we call mysticism, and you find amongst Muslims, so that's what you know. And then the third path, which is the path of Allah's prophets, is based upon the, the idea that the mind and the soul cannot reach the realities of these matters, of the unseen, on its own. That it is from the unseen. And the only way to understand this, these matters, is by following the revelation which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent. And the elucidation of that revelation by his prophets and messengers, and in our case it would be the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because his message is the final message, and is a pristine message which is unsullied, unchanged. And so therefore, for them, they say, well, we're going to you know, understand, we're going to approach these matters by following the revelation." And understanding about Allah, about the unseen, the angels, the last day, the purpose of life, all these matters through revelation. Now, they also, this, this methodology, this method also incorporates aspects of the other two. It doesn't negate reason, doesn't negate thinking and contemplating. But rather thinking and contemplation assists in this matter. How? Well, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed his signs in the creation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established evidences. So we use the mind, we use the thinking to, to see is Islam true or not? Is the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu truly a messenger of Allah? And once we've made a determination, because we've seen the evidences which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent and showed us to show that the Prophet Muhammad was truly a Prophet, then we accept the message which has come to him. And likewise we see Allah's signs in the creation, so we reflect upon that so it increases us in faith. So there is a rule of reason. And likewise, spiritual worship also is important. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet Moses in the Quran, establish the prayer for my remembrance. So, in order to remember Allah, so that these are not just, just facts, because if they're just facts in our mind, we'll forget them. But that they become something living and, and constant in our life, you have to have the worship. So, in Al-Fatiha, for instance, I mean, the Fatiha, it's just really a. I mean, one of the, its main, uh, as of Surah Al-Fatiha, is just basically the declaration of the Aqidah. You know, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, is about Allah, Rahman, Rahim. it's about Allah. Maliki Yomuddin is about Allah on the Day of Judgment. Yaakana'abudu wa yaakana'sda'in is the purpose of our, our existence, to worship Allah. Ihdina's-siratul-mustaqim is qadr, siratul-adheena na'amta'alayhim is about the hereafter. ghairul-maghdoubi alayhim wal is about the hereafter also. So, I mean, it really deals with, with with the matters of the Aqidah. So when one prays and so forth, he enforces uh, reinforces uh, those matters. So the point is that people uh, take three basic approaches uh, among human beings, and you also find it within the Muslims. The, the approach of the philosophers, which is an, er, an errant uh, wrong approach. The approach of the mystics. And the correct approach is the approach of uh, the followers of the prophets of Allah and that is to take revelation we use reason in order to uh, see if the message in itself is true or not initially, to, um, to believe whether Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi is truly the messenger of Allah to see if whether Islam is truly Allah's religion and also to reflect upon Allah's creations to increase us in faith we use worship in order to enforce and to draw closer to Allah but we understand that the matters of the unseen cannot be understood in detail and cannot be understood except through Allah's revelation to His Prophet, whether that comes via the Quran or the Sunnah. So, those are some of the. Um, that's a quick introduction to um, um, the Creed. And uh, I'll leave. Uh, oh, should we do more? Should we do questions? I
0: think we'll open this for
1: questions. Okay, we'll open to the
0: for questions. and al uh, Khairir for uh, this. Uh, this lengthy introduction about Imam ibn Qudama and about his book. And then. An introduction to the meaning of Aqeedah. Uh, like the Sheikh said, Inshallah, we'd like to open the stage for questions and uh, let us remind ourselves of the rules concerning asking questions. Uh, a preference or priority will be given to written questions, Inshallah. Uh, the brother is going around uh, dishing out uh, little pieces of papers. These are for your written questions, Inshallah. The same is taking place, hopefully. With the sisters. Uh, then, if no written questions uh, are available, then the stage is open for direct questions, inshallah. And in your case, it's here. In the case of the sisters, there is a telephone line, inshallah, antenna telephone line. That's, that's a this a is a tel- top for the shaykh, this the uh, the course.
1: Okay, we tried to, to figure out what was the idea of the telephone so we knew it, We so. thought to
0: make it more exciting. Or this inshallah. inshallah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I have uh, one question in front of me at the moment, uh, which I'll put to the Sheikh, inshallah. Simple one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the brother asks uh, which Arabic books uh, of haqidah or an haqqidah should a beginning student of knowledge study and in which order? That is, if you recommend that. And uh, then in English, which ones in English? So, well, uh, yeah, you
1: know, I, I have. Uh, a personal view uh, concerning studying aqidah, that one should study one book of aqidah from the books which are written um, by the authors. In other words, I mean, when, I mean, if, if one is studying aqidah I mean, um, as a student of knowledge, as, as the brothers are saying, so you're studying with a sheikh, uh, or you be a cassette if you don't have a, a sheikh and um, you know your locale. Um, so you take one book of Aqeed. I mean, whether it's Aqeed al-Tahawiyah or an aqeed al or Kitab al-Tawheed and so forth, you know, because it provides a foundation. Okay? So I would say Kitab al-Tawheed is definite. That's, that's a definite one. And then one other book, whether it's you know, Al-Wasatiya or Al-Tahawiyah or Bama'at al-Atikhal, it really doesn't matter. Because most of them, they deal with the same issues. Um, but then afterwards, uh, it is my, my belief that Aqeedah should be uh, learned thereafter uh, from the Qur'an and from the Hadith. I, I think this is really what's important I mean when one when, when studies Aqidah from the books you know the books written in Aqidah itself and, and only relies upon those books what happens is is that um, you, you become sort of um, you sort of start focusing only upon the the matters of disagreement between the various sects alright I mean for instance if you were to study aqeedah to um, uh, give an example um Let's say um, uh, on about the Christians, and so you read the Jawab al-Sahih by Ibn Taymiyah. That's it'd be very great. I mean, if you read it and you studied it with somebody, I mean, you would you would become really a scholar about Christianity, okay, in order to, how to refute it. But just to study that, or you know, Hidayat al-Hayat, or any other book written against the Christians, uh, Muslim book. You know, you're go- you're going to focus. You know, here, I mean, there's um, each of the books is discusses certain points raised by certain, you know, Christian author and it's a refutation, so it's a back and forth sort of thing but, you know, if you study the Quran to, to, uh, as a foundation, you're, and you're with the Quran, and so you read Surah sort of Al-Imran you know, and you understand it's tafsir, I mean your understanding of the aqeet is just that much stronger, because you've, you've, you've made the foundation upon Allah's book and so then now when you come to thereafter, upon, you come to al al-sahih. I mean, the meaning that you can you can benefit from and, and, and the, the benefits you can get is just so much more. So, and I, I, so for that reason, I think that people should, um, and this is just my personal I mean, uh, preference, is that in setting a'aqidah, after setting a basic book of aqidah. Uh, whether it's you know uh, I mean you have to study Kitab mean al-Tawheed that's that's like a definite and then one basic book عقيدة, whether it's Wasati or Tahawi or Luma'ta not al you know you start coming to the books of the Sunnah so you study Kitab al-Iman in Sahih al-Bukhari you study Kitab al-Iman in Sahih uh, Muslim you study Kitab al-Sunnah in Sunan Abu Dawood you study uh, for instance Kitab al-I'tisam bil-Kitab in Sahih al-Bukhari holding fast to the book and the Sunnah in Sahih Bukhari, Kitab have Tawheed within Sahih Bukhari. And you know, then your understanding of of the Aqidah is t- now taken directly from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Okay. So now, when you go back to the other books of Aqidah, and you start reading at uh, Tirmidhi, you start reading, um, you know, um, you know the Fatawa of Ibn Taymiyyah You start reading, you know, Al-Fisal in different by Ibn Hazm concerning the different sects and their different ideas and so forth. I mean, the approach to it now is, is a different approach because you're coming from the basis of having the hadith of the Prophet. And, and this is also, I mean, in my opinion, concerning fiqh also. That in fiqh, you take a, you take a legal textbook, if you're, if you're studying fiqh, what, I mean, whatever, in whatever of the four mathabs, let's say if you're studying the Hanbali mathab, that's the one I'm familiar with. So you take uh, Umda uh, uh, by Ibn Qudam or Zad al Mustaqna, and you study the basics of fiqh. But then afterwards, you go to the books of the Sunnah. So he starts setting kitab al-Tahara and kitab, you know, salat and, and, and kitab al-Zakah and so forth. He starts coming from the hadith of the Prophet and he also starts setting the ayat, uh, dealing with regulations, what are known ayat al-Hakam from the Qur'an. And then when you go to the other books of fiqh afterwards for advanced studies like al-Mughni and al Muhallah, you, you approach him in a completely different uh, uh, matter. So that's just
0: how... Uh, how can our Iman increase knowing that the Muslims will increase in number to be the majority in this world but will have the strength of the scum of the wave of the sea?
1: Well, uh, I mean, first of all, just to point out that, that the Muslims to be the majority in the world, there's, there's I mean, perhaps not. I mean, there's a, a Hadith of Prophet ﷺ where it said that the, the Day of Judgment will not be established Except that a which is in reference usually to the Europeans, I mean, even though it literally means the Romans, uh, are extra the majority of the people. So I mean, the scholars have two different tafsir for this hadith. One that the majority of the Muslims will come at the Day of Judgment will be Europeans, which is an interesting concept. Uh, uh, and uh, the other, the other interpretation of the hadith given is that that just in terms of numbers of, you know, if you look at different communities, that the, the majority of people. Uh, at the day of Judgment, will be the Europeans, and uh, so the other peoples of the world you know uh, Muslims or non Muslim will be in minority compared to them in, in terms of in terms of numerical um, uh, numbers so, um, so that 's just that point. but how can our amount increase knowing that the Muslims will increase in number and they 'll have the strength to come as the way to see well i mean don 't forget I mean the Wasallam also in, as a, will be part of the uh, discussion tomorrow night uh, about the hadith of Thauban. That the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said there will always remain a group of his Ummah upon the truth, and so even though that maybe the if even though the majority of the Muslims might be as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam explained that you know even though there'll be so many numbers, but he said there will be ruhtah, that there will be just like the scum you know the floatsum that's uh, that's on top of you know uh, the water, meaning having no value whatsoever. It's not like water which has a value, gives life, but it's that you know the dirt which the water picks on the top would just sort of scrape off, and so. Uh, but yet the Prophet also said that there always remain one group upon his ummah upon the truth. and So this ummah, this group of the ummah, which is upon the truth, they're the ones who their iman is increased. And their iman is, 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 is the strong iman. And that's the iman that pushes them to be the group that also wages jihad and so forth. So, you know, that's, inshallah, we should try to seek to model ourselves to them and our iman will increase, inshallah.
0: Uh, is it correct to say that messengers cannot be believed in unless they show miracles as the Asha'ir say uh, what's the difference between this statement and saying we must believe in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam via rational arguments in brackets as you mentioned in the lecture okay, uh,
1: that's, a good, that's a good question um, can the messengers uh, uh, cannot be believed in unless they show miracles uh, as the Asha'ir say no that, that's an incorrect notion I mean the ash'aris I mean, we have we, you have you have an issue in Aqidah which i mean lumaniyah doesn't uh, bring out but it's it's good just for us to uh, point out um, nonetheless um, the ash'aris have a um, a notion was that okay how do you prove a messenger i mean how do you prove a prophet i mean if somebody comes appears in the world his name is Moses his name is Isa his name is Ibrahim his name is Muhammad they claim that they are receiving a message from Allah how do we know that they are truthful or not the Christians the argument of the Ahlul Kitab just to put it in another perspective the Christians say that you, you cannot be a prophet unless a previous prophet has been given uh, has given, uh, foretold of your appearance so they say that we know that Jesus is a, a messenger and a prophet the Christians say because Jesus was foretold in the, in the previous scriptures by David and they say also by Daniel and so forth. Okay. But they say, Muhammad, we didn't find anything foretelling Muhammad, so therefore, we, we don't accept him as a prophet. I mean, that's their argument, even though the, the references to the prophet Muhammad in the, in, the, in the Old and New Testament today, I mean, are over 70. Okay. But put that aside. The Ash'aris, which were a, a group of Muslims who, who took the beliefs from the Sunnah, but also were influenced by Greek uh, thought. They said, well, you can only tell a prophet if he has a miracle. He has to do something which, 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 which is such uh, that, that nobody else can do it. But this caused him a problem because then say, well, what about a sorcerer? What about a sorcerer? I mean, the sorcerers in the time of Moses, right? A lot us in the Quran, they threw their, their uh, ropes and their sticks and became uh, snakes, right? So, I mean, how do we understand that? What about a Dajjad who will appear before the end of time? How do we understand that? So they, as a result, they ended up rejecting.
0: Uh, rejecting. The messengers arriving from the sisters.
1: So, uh, as a result, uh, they ended up rejecting um, the. Uh, what about the karamat of the awliya, the, the miracles of the of the righteous Muslims, which is shown either to support the religion or to sh- to support them. How do we understand that? I mean, if, if, if miracles in and of itself is the only criteria, then we would be by, by, by uh, necessity, we would have to say that the sorcerers were also prophets, that a Dajjal is also a prophet, and that the righteous Muslims who, who manifest karamat are also prophets. So this is a problem. The, the other problem is that the signs of the prophethood of, of the prophet, especially the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa are so innumerable that they cannot be counted. I mean, whatever the servants are in need of something, it, this is Allah's sunnah. It's Allah's practice that He provides it abundantly, and and it's easy to receive. For instance, oxygen, right? The air that we believe we breathe, right? This is something which every single human being is in need of, right? As a result, there is probably no place in the face of the earth, right? Maybe some very high mountains, you know, the Himalayas, or some where there is not a sufficient oxygen for human being to breathe. Because, I mean, this is something essential for every single, you know, living thing to have, every single human being. So therefore you find in such abundance that there's no place in the earth except there's oxygen. Um, likewise with water, there is, is very few places on the face of the earth where human beings live where there's not sufficient water for their needs this is something which of abundance and likewise with plants and foods and so forth so this is a lesson of the earth Okay. likewise with the evidence is pointing to his existence and the evidence is pointing to his worship and the evidence is pointing to the truthfulness of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu <laughs> Alaihi Wasallam are so numerous that in fact they are more numerous than, than the availability of oxygen and water and um, and we recognize the truthfulness of a person by by, sometimes just by looking at his face, right face, right? I mean a judge in court will say, you know, I mean and we say in the English language we say things and we say that uh, for instance to, to to show that we say a person is green with envy, right? I mean he's not actually didn't turn green, right? But it means that, you know, that that he he his face showed something, right, that you could tell that he's envious, right? Or you're saying that he's, you know, red and shame, or he's, you know, blushing you red. And that his face and so he turned red but that he, you know, his facial uh, uh, characteristics and his facial uh, movements were such that you could tell that he's either ashamed or that he's blushing or that he's angered or that he's envious and so forth. And likewise, you can tell if people are, are speaking or the truth or lying. So how much more so would it be for a person if he's lying against Allah or telling the truth about Allah? Obviously, just from his appearance there would be so clear whether he's a prophet or a, a, a false prophet this is just uh, one of the matters and if you look at the letter which the Prophet ﷺ said to Her- uh, sent to Heraclius uh, the Caesar of, of, of the, Byzant- uh, the, the Romans of um, uh, Byzantium and uh, the, the questions that uh, of Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan to see whether he was a prophet or not right? he, he didn't ask if he had any miracles he asked you know, uh, questions like oh, you, was his, any of his forefathers ever called to this was he originally from a royal family maybe they're trying to get back their power who follows him in the society are they the poor and the, the, the downtrodden or is it the rich is he victorious does anybody leave the religion after he accepts it I mean these were the questions he, he, he used to try to see if he was truthful or not likewise Khadija عنها, when the Prophet ﷺ came to her and said I fear for myself I mean the Prophet didn't know after he had the experience of al-Wahi he didn't know exactly what had happened to him and she said, what? Well, Allah will never, you know what I'm saying, uh, you know, shame you or, or harm you. Because what? Because, well, you're, you're kind to the poor and you take care of, the, of your guests and, and so forth. And you help the weak and the oppressed. So she used these matters as an indication to his prophethood. Okay? And likewise, you know, the Prophet never ever lied. So if he never ever lied in jahiliya. About you know human matters, why would he lie? Begin to lie about Allah, the fact that he was illiterate. And these are all evidences, you know. And um, last summer, um, uh, when I uh, in, in, in Washington, I, I teach Tafsir. There was I, we did source units. I mean, I did about maybe eight weeks, uh, you know, on, on the uh, the evidences of the Prophet Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. So if you can get those tapes, we went through all of them. I mean, all the different evidences. Huh? Which, which
0: uh, Surat, Yunus Surah Yunus.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a reference to to the prophet of the Prophet Muhammad So I, I went through it. I just took it from Ibn Taymiyyah's Jawab al-Sahih. I mean, you know, it's about 200 pages of Ibn Taymiyyah. We just sort of summarized and we went through it. So you can those tapes really go through that. Now, as far as uh, the difference between that and uh, what I was saying that we must believe in the Prophet Muhammad via rational arguments. No, not that we must believe in the Prophet via rational arguments. But this is uh, an example of where reason is used. I mean, where reason is, is used and it's not, it's not blameworthy, because to tell whether the Prophet Muhammad is true or not, or to tell whether the message of Islam is true or not, um, you know, using reason in this case is not blameworthy. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, uh, points to this in the Qur'an. He says that you know, that I only command you with one thing, that you stand up, you know what I'm saying, either in singles or in pairs, and you reflect. You know what I'm saying? Does your companion, is he insane? Is he mad? So, I mean, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding the Qur'an, commanding the unbelievers that they they delve into this issue, that they sit and they reflect about him. Either they reflect by themselves or they reflect in pairs, so they can, you know, discuss the matter. Mm-hmm. You know, is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam insane as, as, as they're claiming? So, I mean, so this is a, a means, you know, and once you've established the Prophet or the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, whether it's by miracles, whether it's by... Um, uh, I mean, whatever, re- whatever leads you to believe in the Prophet or the Prophet Muhammad sallam, then, then you've reached it. It doesn't necessarily need you to establish that by rational arguments. But to use rational arguments here uh, is uh, valid. And, and there's, there's one other rational argument which I want to use. I gave one time the, um, a tape uh, or a lecture some years ago here in London called The Rational Arguments of the Quran. there's a rational argument which is not from the Quran to show the, uh, the truth of Islam. If you came to, uh, especially, this is, this is also very useful for Jews and Christians if you're arguing with them. If you say to, to them and say, well, uh, Jude, because Jews and Christians accept the notion that there, that there is a God, there is a creator of the heavens and the earth. And uh, you say to them, well, there is, uh, we accept that there, there is a belief in, in, in Allah, there is, there is a, a creator. And would we not accept that this creator is merciful? They would say Yes. And we would not say that this creator wants good for his uh, servants and his creatures. We would say they would say yes, and that he w- he would guide them and show them to that which is, is beneficial to them. You say yes. So then you would say that okay, if, if that's the case, then he would have to, you know, show them what what their their guidance is. Okay, and if you look at each people, let us look at what the people have and and see uh, what is 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 the guidance. So. If you go to the Jews, right, and you ask the Jews, do you have the guidance for humanity? They say, no, we have guidance for the Jews. So this by, by is, you have to, you have to by, you uh, negate it, okay? If you go to the Christians, they say, no, we have the gospel according to, you know, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to, you know, uh, John. And so therefore, it's it's not the, the guidance from Allah, right? Right? You go to the Buddhist and to the Confucianists and you go to the communists and the atheists and all the other people of the world, they also, you, you come off. So, all it leaves is the Muslims, right? Who claim that their book is from Allah Azawajal. So, so, by, by, by necessity, then it has to be the truth. Do you see how that argument and reason works? I mean, if, if they have agree that Allah must have sent something, Right? and nobody else in the world claims that they have that which Allah has to send. and we, we are in agreement that Allah must have sent something so then by by, uh, by necessity then therefore what the Muslims have is truth even without uh, uh, inspecting into it or not mm. anyway that's, that's, <laughs>
0: something. <laughs> that's
1: something from
0: Sheikh Jaffer we, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, uh, In what way should we teach our children the Aqidah? Yeah, for children aged uh, 7 to 9 years say, Should we uh, take them through uh, the pillars of Iman then Imam Al-Tahawi's book for example, in order to not uh, in order not to confuse them uh, but at the same time giving them a comprehensive understanding No, you're right
1: Um, In terms of teaching children, I mean you you teach them the pillars of Iman and I wouldn't go through Imam Al-Tahawi's book I mean, I would choose a book for uh, teaching Aqidah uh, one, of the, one of the books which is contemporary in, in, in written because it, it deals with the aqidah not from in, in reference to the, the sects but just in terms of ex- expressing just what are the basics. Like Ibn Erte means, uh, I say aqidah, ahlus sunnah wal jamaah. He says, you know, Allah I think gives just ayat and the angels and the books and so forth. So it's, it's more of as expository. It's not in, in reference to any you know incorrect beliefs. So that that would be. Um, uh, something and, and the other thing is that you know I mean people need to write books and so I mean somebody has to sit down and figure out uh, how to write a book in aqidah for children who have are being raised uh, in in the United Kingdom or in the United States. I mean this is something that somebody has to think. I mean obviously a person who is a an educator he will know that what are the common ideas and uh, you know concepts which which children. Will have you know, which will pick up in the society. So besides you know, ex- giving expressing to them, you know what the, the basics of aqidah like from in an expository sort of sense, like if everything means aqidah jama'a, but also to point out what are some of the concepts and notions they're going to have in, in, in their mind, and and, and and to make some sort of reference to that that's very important. So you know, it needs educators to to address the issue. I mean, there is no reason why we should be shackled to the the books of the past. Uh, yes, the books of the past uh, provide for us the foundation for learning our religion. And I mean by the books I don't mean the books of Hadith and the Quran, I was, this is a revelation from Allah. Well. But, I'm saying, but there's no reason to say, well, okay, you know, Ibn Qudamah wrote al itiqad and so therefore we can only study this book in aqidah Lum'at al itiqad for the day of judgment. I mean that that doesn't make sense whatsoever. We need to, you know, write books in aqidah which reflect the different misconceptions that people have uh, today, presently. And likewise in books in fiqh I mean when, 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 when Ibn Qudama mentions in Al-Umda When he talks about um, You know water And he says that You know that, uh, that The amount of water In order to be considered to be uh, uh, The Hanbalis have a point Where they say That um, You know if you have they, they divide water into two categories They have something which is called A lot of water And a little water And a lot of water You know cannot become Nejus unless it changes Its scent Or its color Or its taste uh, okay but a little water if any, any sort of najasa falls into it becomes n- n- najasa uh, so what is the definition between a lot of water and a little water okay so if you look at the first page of his book on umdah it says that a lot of water is so many you know Iraqi ruffles. rathal is a type of measurement in in uh in a, in, in a, a volume uh, in, in their time. I, I have no idea what a ruffle is, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I've been reading this book, I don't know. And I still don't know what a ruffle is. You know? so, I, because, I mean, it's an example which is, which is not, I mean, you know, contemporary. I mean, if somebody was to write a contemporary uh, fiqh book, and I only understood this issue when I, ri- when I picked up a contemporary you know, fifth book and I said, well, yeah, a ruffle is equal to so many you know, cubic kilograms. or and then I was able to say, okay, now I know how much a lot of water is to know if the falls into it or not but before that you know five hundred eighty iraqi ruffles i mean makes no sense to me whatsoever uh... likewise if you go to if you go to the issue of um... the issue of uh... uh... to give an example of uh, the, the issue of um... of jihad uh... when it says that for instance uh... that uh... that there are two you know two uh... portions two sam are given to the one who's riding a horse and one portion is given to, to the foot soldier Okay. How, uh, what, how does that apply now in a modern army when you have people in airplanes or people on tanks or people in armored personnel car- carriers? I mean, how, how does that apply, for instance? Mm-hmm. When you come to the books of buying and uh, uh, buying and selling in al and it discusses you know uh, trade like and munabahs and mulabasa and, and so forth. Uh, but how? What about contemporary transactions that people do uh, through credit cards and so forth? What are the Islamic rulings regarding that? What about stocks and bonds and so forth? You know types of you know uh societies uh, commercial societies i mean uh, companies and so forth that maybe did not exist during the time of ibn qudama so if we were just to stick to an umda and teach our children umda then then we wouldn't have fuqaha and we would have people who would know fiqh for that century but we wouldn't know fiqh for for this century i mean one of, one of the uh, one of one of the uh, the jokes i i, I have uh, uh, with, with my wife is that uh, if, when i was one time we were reading uh, thing on fiqh and it said that uh, Ibn Josi said that the responsibility for uh, the husband uh, to his wife that he provides her a blanket and a dress and a loaf of bread you know uh, <laughs> every day and that's it a blanket one blanket a year one dress a year and a loaf of bread every day so this is my marital responsibilities you know? <laughs> uh, that made sense in, in, you know, in, in, in Baghdad maybe in the year you know, five, you know, Josie dies like 570 or whatever. So, in the sixth century Baghdad, that might make sense for you know, the people. I mean, you, you know, your responsibility for, you know, there's always a chapter in the books of fiqh, in the books of marriage, about, you know, uh, living well with, you know, husband and wife, you know, uh, and, and And so it says, you know, for the responsibilities of the husband, he's got to provide her a loaf of bread and one blanket and, and you know, and one dress a year. So, but, I mean, obviously now that's, that's inapplicable. So if you were to write a contemporary book of fiqh, you need to express what it is. Instead, it's like, for instance, you don't have to provide her medicine. Okay, because medicine was, in those days, something which was very rare for people. Mm. But now medicine, and also because, probably because of the lifestyle of people, I mean, the notion of having medicine and so forth, but now it's considered something essential in life. So to say that you know, the husband is not responsible for buying the, uh, the medicines for his wife and so forth, that's her own responsibility. That's I mean, something now if you were to look at it, that would be, that'd be considered, I mean, if, if, uh, if a wife took her husband to a Qadi in a Sharia court and said, you know, he refuses to buy my medicine for me, I mean, the Qadi would probably, you know, judge that the husband is not, you know, treating his wife well and might, you know, force the husband to pay because, but in those days, not. So, and these are just some of the issues. So, in other words, we, we need <coughs> to have contemporary books in aqidah and Fiqh. Uh,
0: uh, do students of Islam like us need to follow a madhab? Uh, do you need to have a certain amount of knowledge, i.e., Arabic? Uh,
1: you need to have a certain amount of knowledge, Arabic. Uh, uh, our, our, what do, it depends what the sister means by students of Islam. I mean, if you mean students of Islam, practitioners of Islam, then we do not need a madhab. But if you mean student of Islam in the sense that you're studying to become a faqih, alright, then, then there's no way you can become a faqih unless you uh, adopt a, a madhab, a legal school in the beginning. It's like medicine. Each one of us has a knowledge of medicine, even if we're not doctors, okay? E- each one of us knows basics of medicine. If I have a headache, I know to take aspirin. If I have a, a cut, right, if, on my hand, I know that if the wound is deep, I need to go to the hospital and get stitches, right? But if it's, if it's not deep, I can just wash it and put some antibacterial thing, maybe put a Band-Aid on it, right? I mean, this is some basic principles of medicine that, that we understand. Now, if you want to become a doctor... Right? You need to go to school. And if you go to school, you'll be given a set curriculum, right? And then once you graduate from that set curriculum, right, then you're as a, as a medical doctor, you can look at the different procedures, different practices, different medications, and you pick and choose as you want because you've reached a certain amount of knowledge, you have a certain amount of practice in medicine, okay? The same thing with, with Islamic legal studies, okay? If you're just a practitioner of Islam and you want to know how to worship Allah and how to deal in your activities, and you just need to know what Allah and His Messenger sallam, has given you as a ruling in that, and if you know it, then you act upon it, if you don't know it, you ask a scholar, and the scholar gives you a fatwa, and you act upon that fatwa that's, that's, that's the, the sum of it, but if you want to become a faqih, a scholar of fiqh then you need to go to a school and, and that school means that you have, would have to adopt a legal school It's for your beginning studies, so you understand the principles, and when you graduate from that then you can look at the breadth of Islamic legal writings, and you can pick and choose as you wish, and that's
0: what we call it Right, uh, this brother, uh, and we will take only two more questions, because time is uh, approaching for Saat Am Will you be discussing any of the important issues uh, regarding aqidah of our day and age, like governance, democracy, and secularism?
1: No, I mean there was supposed to have been a lecture on secularism last night, uh, I think. Was it last night? Yeah, in Leeds, night. yeah. In Leeds, right. And, and uh I apologize I wasn't able to um, attend uh, my my arrival to the United Kingdom was delayed, so I owe the people in the United Kingdom a lecture on, on secularism. Okay. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, I guess the people of Leeds in particular. So but you know, there's a section of Al concerning the Muslim ruler and um, and so, you know, we maybe during the question and answer, we can bring up issues like governance and democracy and secularism, but there's not specifically, they said the al was written, you know, um, a few centuries back, so the issues of democracy and secularism weren't addressed, because so they were not known.
0: Mm. Okay, last question, inshallah. What is the rule concerning the will in Islam?
1: Right, I mean, al-wasiyah is, 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 is required, is, is, is if you have something to, you know, bequeath. You know, as the Prophet ﷺ said that it's not permissible for any Muslim right uh, to three days if he had something to bequeath not to have his will written. So if you have something which you need to bequeath, you have rights that, uh, that, are owed to you, uh, that you owe to someone that are not written down somewhere and you're afraid that at the time of your death you might get lost or you have some property which you want to bequeath, then it becomes required upon you to have a will. Uh, otherwise, if you have no property and you have nothing to bequeath and there are no rights or obligations upon you, then, then having a will is not required
0: Is that what's meant by will here? That's what no I thought it meant by wasiyah
1: no. I mean I, I understood it I, meant, I don't
0: know Okay, uh, I, mean. okay. We'll I think we'll uh, finish with this question uh, Regarding questions raised and written Inshallah Any ans- unanswered questions Inshallah brothers and sisters We'll do our best to attend to uh, Inshallah at other times Throughout the uh, two Remaining days Inshallah uh, finally, uh, we uh, thank you, we say jazakallah khair for listening and uh, also to say jazakallah khair, Sheikh Ali for giving us this beneficial lecture, inshallah. Uh, the next lecture will be tomorrow morning, inshallah, at 9.30 in the morning. So for those, inshallah, who are not staying here overnight inshallah we emphasize to be punctual and arrive on time Jazakumullah Khair once again Subhanakallahu wa bihamdik Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk